Listeners, from time to time, I get to step outside the norm on the Doctor Who show and chase down a bit of a passion topic or do an interview I'm genuinely interested in doing. The time I called Sophie Aldred on Skype remains a bucket list moment for me. And today is one of those times with a new Doctor Who reference book on the horizon, a new book that I've already pre-ordered, all about the creation of Doctor Who back in 1963. And I'm going to talk to its author, Paul Hayes, right now. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hello, Rob. I'm very well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me on the show again. It's, it's very kind of you and very nice to be back on. Oh, brilliant. Yes. When we last had you on the show, it was for an episode of Primary Sources. But the yes. time before that, you were on here to talk about your book, The Long Game, 1996 to 2003, the inside story of how the BBC brought back Doctor Who, your first interview for it, actually. It was, yes, yes. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. you very kindly uh, were the first ones on that one. And uh, yeah, I felt very flattered and very honoured, as I do, to, to be on again to talk about this one. Thank you. <laughs> yes, indeed, because today, dear listener, we'll be talking about a prequel of sorts to Paul's book. It's the new one, Paul to Open, 1962 to 63, the inside story of how the BBC created and launched Doctor Who. Paul, how did this come about? Were you thinking about doing this when you were writing the first book? No, not at all. In fact, one of the reasons, as I think I wrote in the introduction to The Long Game that I wrote that one, was because it felt like an area of Doctor Who that hadn't really been explored in, in one narrative. As I mentioned at the time, there were lots of different places where you could find bits of that story, but I didn't feel there was anywhere that pulled it all together. Whereas, of course, with the creation of the show in 1963, even though it's something I've long been really fascinated by and it's 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 such a great story that I really love and, and such an era and such a time in the BBC that I find fascinating, I felt that it had been well covered by other people. But then after The Long Game came out, and it, it did quite well, it got lots of nice comments from people, it sold a nice number of copies and all that sort of thing, and it, so it seemed as if that had gone really well. And I, I did an interview uh, at, the, at the very end of 2021, when The Long Game had come had been out for a few months, with uh, someone called AJ Black, who has his, uh, a website where he talks about film and television, and uh, the question he asked me at the end was, did I have any plans for another Doctor Who book or non-fiction book of any kind? And I didn't at that stage, and I just said, no, I can't imagine I'll write another non-fiction book, I don't really have an idea for one, but, but if I do, maybe I'll have another go. And it was New Year quite quickly after that, going into 2022. I was thinking about, you know, what sort of things could I work on this year? And I kept thinking about what I'd said there. I didn't have any plans for another Doctor Who book. And I just kept thinking, well, it'd be, it would almost be a waste to sort of, I've, I've got this book published. It's gone well. People have liked it. Uh, there must be some way I can, I, uh, you know, follow on from that and perhaps come up with mm. something else that, that might get published and, and people might buy and uh, I started thinking again about the creation of the show and, and there was another strand to this in that in 2021 I'd had published in Doctor Who magazine an article about Donald Wilson, the co-creator of the show. And right. that had ended up, it had been on the back burner there for a while, it eventually got published by them, but sadly by the time it got published there wasn't space for it to be as long as it originally had been. It had to be cut down quite a bit. So I had a lot of research and writing about Donald Wilson that hadn't made it into the magazine and I thought, well, I could have a, a chapter about Donald Wilson in something because I've got all this material that wasn't able to be used in DWM mm -hmm. but if you're writing a, a bit about the life of Donald Wilson if, if that's one chapter what's it one chapter of and so eventually I sort of thought well there's the creation of the program and maybe I could do a book where that was covered in a way that it hadn't before because I started to realize that all the other places where you read about the creation almost all of them 
there it's it's the beginning of the story it's the start of writing about season one or the Hartnell era or the 60s mm-hmm. or it's about the production of an unearthly child it's there wasn't really a book I felt where the creation was the story so I thought what if I wrote a book that took it from that very first memo from Eric Mashwitz asking the script department about science fiction through to well, originally I thought maybe through to the first transmission, but then I realised, no, it has to go up to the end of 1963, just because you get that whole kind of year's events quite nicely. And, yeah. of course, on the last Saturday in 1963, you get the Daleks sliding onto Britain's screens for the first time. And so a yes. bit like the long game ended with the recommission of the show, and you get that happy ending, as it were. You get the same here, where it ends where we know that the story then goes on to be Doctor Who conquering the world. Yes, because I was thinking about this, leading up to us speaking and I I thought yes while that first book was covering a topic that hadn't really been done properly in one place before the birth of Doctor Who feels like something we all know and and has appeared in a lot of places so I thought oh well maybe Paul's found some new material or material that wasn't widely known but it sounds like just the angle of not doing the just the birth of the show but going back a year or so is the is the hook here well, hopefully there are some new bits and pieces in it and uh, hopefully some uh, bits and pieces that we previously thought that actually turn out to be wrong. Like, for instance, in a lot of places online, you'll find August 20th, 1963, given as the date when the first ever shooting of something new for the show took place for the titles. If you go back and look through the documentation, actually, that never happened. That August 20th session never happened. Uh, so there's bits right, and Right, so like it's that. become folklore. Oh, yes, indeed, yeah. Uh, ah. Toby Haydock, who, who, who very kindly wrote the um, the forward for me, uh, wrote, writes about how, you know, he loved that date because it was, uh, I think, Sylvester McCoy's birthday, Sophie Aldred's birthday, Anthony Ainley's birthday, and so it's really disappointing that that's no longer the date <laughs> when uh, Doctor Who uh, first had something shot for it. But it's also, as well, it, it's, it's taking a similar approach to The Long Game in the sense that in The Long Game, one of the things I really wanted to do was explain the wider background and context, not just that these things happened, but why Mm -hmm. they happened. So how these people got into those positions at that time, what was going on in the BBC at that time that meant that that these certain things happened. And I very much tried to do that with this one, with Pull to Open, to explain what was happening in the BBC at the time and also explain a bit more about some of who, who these people were, not just Donald Wilson, who's always been a figure who's particularly fascinated me because he never seems to get the credit or the exposure that he deserves in, in comparison to Newman but no, people who are, who are normally just names on a list to us people like Alice Frick and Eric Mashwitz and Donald Bull and John Braben people who are normally just there as mentions at the start just finding out a little bit more about who these people were and why they were doing those jobs yeah well one of one of the aspects that stood out to me regarding that first book is how it really felt like a crash course in how the BBC worked at the time. And it sounds like this might have a similar air. You know, how different was the BBC of the early 60s to the, the 90s and the early noughts that you were covering in the in the first book? Very different, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, hmm. It's interesting that when the period The Long Game was covering, uh, the whole kind of method of TV drama production in the UK had, had changed by then. And uh, the old multi-camera studio method shooting something in the same way that a chat show or a soap opera is shot these days you know with multi-cameras all being controlled from a gallery you know that had stopped really being used for drama in the UK mostly by the sort of late 80s early 90s whereas in the early 60s that was the way of making drama you know you made these things uh, it's a sort of changeover period
period because live drama was ju- just about sort of coming to an end as a regular thing. There were still some live dramas being made. Um, there's a very famous police series in the UK uh, called Z Cars, for example, mm-hmm. and the producer of that liked it being done live. He felt it gave the performances more, more pace and energy, and so that was done live right through to the end of its original run, I think, in, at the end of 1965. But right. mostly drama was now being, even though it was being made in multi-camera studios still, as it had been when it was live, it was now being mostly made on tape. But there were, there were restrictions. The, ac- the Actors' Union in Britain, Equity, uh, was quite a powerful force at the time. And, and they were quite anti-sort of pre-recording and recording out of sequence and things. So they had all kinds of rules and regulations in place about how much pre-shooting you could do and uh, how much out of sequence shooting you could do and things. And also, they had this, there was this regulation that a pre-recorded programme could not take more than three times its running order to shoot. So those mm. early Doctor Who episodes, they have 75-minute recording sessions because that was the maximum amount of time you were allowed to shoot them in on the Friday evening in the studio. On the other hand, though, that kind of as-liveness of early Doctor Who has sometimes been oversold a little bit because right from the very beginning, right from the very start, there was always an editing session booked for the following Monday. So they would record. The way it worked is they would rehearse through the week like a stage play. So the actors, they'd get their scripts. They would presumably learn them over the weekend or whenever beforehand. And on the Monday, Saturday for the first story, but Monday for most of the stories afterwards, they would go to... The BBC had no dedicated rehearsal space at the time. So they would go to church halls and (laughs) and, uh, Salvation Army centres and drill halls all over over the place. And they would uh, rehearse there through the week, Monday to Thursday. Where, where the sets would be, be marked out and tape on the floor and all this kind of thing. So they'd rehearse it like a stage play. And then on the Friday, they would have their one day in the studio where through the morning, afternoon, through the day, they would rehearse with the sets and with the cameras and camera rehearsals, as it was called. And then in the evening, they had this 75-minute slot where they could get this 25-minute programme recorded. But as I say, even though most of it would be done in those kind of long as-live takes... There was always a bit more post-production going on than is sometimes supposed, and we know this because they, they had an editing session every Monday mm-hmm. um, evening. But also, there's some interesting memos that exist from the early days of the series from around November 63. There's one from Mervyn Pinfield, who was the associate producer on Doctor Who, sent to some of the directors, reminding them that uh, they must specify which section of each episode they want a film recorded to use as the recap next week because uh, they're doing retakes sometimes and it won't always be obvious which section is wanted there's also another memo from yeah there's also another memo from bbc enterprises who sold the shows overseas complaining about how um what they had wanted to do is as i think most people know to, to sell the shows overseas they would be film recorded so to put it basically film camera pointing at a screen to make a copy mm-hmm. on film because it's much easier to sell overseas uh it was much more durable and, and all, all those various things so they would make film record- and they wanted they didn't want to have to go through a generation of videotape to make these they wanted just to do their film recordings straight from the studio sessions and for the, so for the first few episodes they tried doing this, making their film recordings straight from what was coming out of Lime Grove Studio D, not via the eventual videotape, if that makes sense. But right. there's a memo that exists from Enterprises complaining that it was impossible for them to get their to make these recordings usable because too much work was being done on the episodes afterwards. Oh. So, so right from the very start, even though a lot of the acting was being done in long, rehearsed takes 
there, there was a lot being done to the episode, more being done to the episodes afterwards, I think, than, than is sometimes sometimes supposed. So there, there was it was a sort of halfway house. Live drama had kind of gone out. It was still being made in the studios, multi-camera, like the live drama had been, but an increasing amount of post-production was starting to come in. That's very interesting because you do get the sense when watching the early Hartnell era that they are performing it like a play and you think, well, that makes sense. These actors would be used to that. They'd be used to their rep Mm. theatre. They'd be used to maybe doing live stuff on TV. You can sense that someone is waiting in the wings on the set to do their line while people are talking in another part of the the set. You can sense all that, but, but the thought that there was more editing going on, that's very interesting. What was something else that surprised you in writing the book, Paul? Maybe an anecdote you came across or a person you got to speak to for it? Because you've already blown me away with the editing thing. What what was something else that surprised you? I suppose one thing that really surprised me is I was fortunate enough, um, you may be aware of Graham Burke, who wrote, mm-hmm. uh, who edited Sidney Newman's memoirs for publication. And uh, so it's a brilliant book that I highly recommend to everyone. Yes. And he was able to come across the correspondence between Malcolm Hulk and Sidney Newman when uh, Malcolm Hulk was writing the first ever book about Doctor Who, The Making of Doctor Who, which was published in 1972. And Malcolm Hulk was really the first person ever to sort of go back from a historical perspective and try and work out who had created Doctor Who. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he was researching this book in 1971 and, and he got in touch with Sidney Newman, Donald Wilson, Verity Lambert and David Whittaker. So he was the first sort of Doctor Who researcher, really, to try and find... And he was speaking to these people only eight years after this had happened. So he was speaking... He was doing this research closer to the events than anyone else did. He got to speak to Newman. And he's the only... As far as I know, he's the only person who ever interviewed Donald Wilson about Doctor Who. It's really frustrating with Wilson in that in 1991, he did a really detailed, in-depth interview, very long oral history interview about his life and career... With uh, for an oral history archive being put together by an organisation called Bechtu, like a, a film industry trade union in the UK. And uh, they were working with the British Film Institute doing oral history interviews with people about careers in film. And, and he did a very long, detailed interview, which the BFI holds and which I've been able, able to listen to. And they asked, and it's wonderful. And but they go all the way through it and it comes towards the end and you realise they're not going to ask him about Doctor Who. They're not going to ask him about Doctor Who. And they don't <laughs> oh, ask no. him about Doctor Who, and he doesn't bring it up. So as far as I know, the only interview that was ever done with Donald Wilson purely about Doctor Who was Malcolm Hulk's one in 1971. And Hulk did a phone interview with him. He tape recorded it. He had the tape recording typed up as a transcript. But mm-hmm. the only bit of that we have is two pages that Hulk sent to Newman and which survived in Newman's papers and which Graham Burke found when he was researching uh, for the published edition of Newman's memoirs. But in these two pages, Wilson talks about him and Newman creating Doctor Who. I mean, you'll know this if you've read Graham's book, but but if you haven't read Graham's book, I will save some of this because I don't want to spoil mine for people. Sure, sure. It's interesting that, because the reason... Hulk sends these two pages of, of the Wilson interview to Newman is because he's a bit worried that Newman, because Newman has said, written to Hulk saying, it was all my idea, I created it, it was entirely mine. 
and Hulk sends these pages over saying, well, um, you've put me in a bit of a, a bit of a bind here, Sydney, because Donald says this. Hulk we knew Newman. Uh, Hulk had written for um, Armchair Theatre when Newman was producing that, and he co-wrote the uh, the Pathfinder serials at, at ABC Television, which many people see as sort of precursors to Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. So, so Hulk and Newman had worked together quite a lot when Newman was in the UK. So Hulk was able to write to him and say, well, you've said this, Sydney, but, but Donald said this. And it's interesting that we all have this image of Newman as this man who fiercely protected his image as the creator of Doctor Who, so much so that we, I think we all know the story that in the 1980s when the UK edition of um, uh, Trivial Pursuit said that Terry Nation created the series, he absolutely hit the roof and, and wanted to take legal action against them. Uh, he even wrote to Terry Nation to get Terry Nation to send him a letter saying that he didn't create Doctor Who so he could send it to the makers of Trivial Pursuit. So it's interesting that knowing that about Newman and knowing how much he was usually sort of protective of his of the idea that he'd created the show, it's interesting that when Wilson's claims are put to him, he's quite relaxed about it. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe that is, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe yeah, Donald maybe did do that, yeah. So so that surprised me. Newman's fairly relaxed, although as he says to Hulk, uh, in the in one of the letters, he says, uh, "Mac, I can afford to be relaxed about this because there's no money involved." <laughs> wow, yeah. Look, it's like that sometimes when you're researching things. I was recently researching the Fifth Doctor's costume, and the guy who put that together did very few interviews about it. So the the information on that, and that's something that happened in in the 1980s, mm. is fractured. So I can imagine what it's like going back to the the 60s. I mean, I think that must be one of the profound differences with your first book. Yes. There just aren't as many people still alive who you can go to for a comment here. No, it swings and roundabouts because obviously there are a lot of new interviews I did for The Long Game, whereas for this, uh, there's far fewer people still around to speak to. It's, it's, it's so frustrating about Wilson because he lived until um, 2002 and... According to his daughters, who I spoke to years ago when I was researching for Doctor Who, the Doctor Who magazine piece, he was, you know, fully compassmentous till the end. So he was, he was around until two thousand and two, and and in full possession of his faculties. And yet, fandom never seems to have got hold of him. I remember talking to Stephen James Walker about this on an email, and he said that, yeah, I tried to interview um, uh, Donald Wilson in the eighties, and I was told by the BBC that he was living in a retirement home in Scotland, which was completely untrue. <laughs> so uh, it's just such a shame that that fandom, you know, Hal Stammers Walker or whoever, n- never got, because I'm sure he would have spoken to them, and, and it would have been so useful. But sadly... Um, yeah, that's ifs and ands now. But uh, luckily, of course, many of the people involved have been interviewed down the years and uh, I'm able to quote from various sources. But yes, it's, so it swings and roundabouts in the terms that there are far fewer new interviews. I was able to speak to Warris Hussein and Carol Ann Ford and Bernard Lodge, who did, who did the, the titles, and uh, Brian Hodgson I interviewed a few years ago for a, a radio uh, programme, so I had an interview mm-hmm. done with him. But so whereas on the minor side there's fewer people I can do my own interviews with so I'm reliant on a lot of other sources for quotes for interviews on the plus side of course there's much more you know well I have access to the BBC internal documentation the BBC written archive centre at Caversham which of course for the long game I didn't have that privilege because it was obviously too recent to be able to get hold of any internal BBC material from that time so um, yeah there's pluses and minuses on on that yeah swings and roundabouts indeed (laughs) Um, are these early years of the show, the Hartnell era, essentially a favourite of yours, Paul? It's, I don't know if I... I always struggle with this, Chris. I don't know if I have a favourite era particularly, but I, I, okay. it, is an, it is an era. It is one of the eras. Of the, I mean, I love all... Do- it's like Tom Spilsbury says, I love all Doctor Who, you know. But I do find 
certainly production wise i find i think the beginning of anything is fascinating isn't it if you're mm, interested mm. in a television series or a film or, or, or anything really if there's something that was created by a group of people coming together at a certain point in history it's fascinating to see how and why those people came together at that time uh, you know that eighth doctor thing that delicate thread of coincidences it, it, so it's, mm. it's it's fascinating to see how that came about and, and at the very beginning of something and i think there is a great romance to that era in the sense that on the one hand it's utterly ridiculous that they try to do all these extraordinary things in the confines of one rather knackered BBC studio in a multi-camera yeah. setup uh, and they and they didn't know that you can't do you know the space year 5000 on four cameras at Lime Grove you know it didn't occur to them that you couldn't do that because that's just what television was and it's what they uh, I remember reading something Mark Gatiss right in Doctor Who magazine once he said well you know continuity and canon is all very nice but how wonderful must it have been to be David Whittaker and just open a submission that said the year is 3000 the earth is underwater or something like that yeah absolutely now, depending on how you answered that question was going to lead me into my next, and now I don't know quite how to count it because <laughs> I, I can see pros and cons, whether you like or, or don't like the Hartnell era. I can see pros and cons there. You know, on, on one side, you might really enjoy writing this book because you just bloody love the era. Or on the other side, maybe you could feel you could be more clinical about it, you know, and a bit detached from it. But it sounds like you might be somewhere in between. Well, hopefully, I think when you're writing a non-fiction book like that, I think the best non-fiction is written by people who have a passion for the subject. Obviously, you mm -hmm. need a kind of, you don't want to, uh, you know, you need an academic detachment in some ways to to make sure that you're, what you're writing is, is as objective as it can be. But yes. on the other hand, I think with something like this, I think a passion for the subject really helps. And it's not just Doctor Who that interests me, but as I say, the, the BBC at that time fascinates me as well. And, and it's such a, an interesting period in, in British history history as well the kind of social and cultural background that, that, that was going on at the time and uh it's, it's the world of profumo and kennedy and the space race and the beatles and it's a it's a very heady mix mm. do, you, do you go down i know those are side streets you could go down and get lost completely in because they're huge topics but do you go down any of those to any degree well i see yeah there's bits and pieces because you because because it is such a fascinating year and we all know what it's building towards Mm -hmm. You do drop in mentions of, like, for instance, you know, around around the... We don't know exactly what date Verity Lambert started at the BBC, but it was around the same point in June when Kennedy did his famous um, American University speech. Right. Our most basic common link. So you have to mention that, really, just because of what that means to Doctor Who as well. And the fact that there's the line, we all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's future. And then there's a line after that, which is buried in the mix. In, it is there in Remembrance, but it's buried in the mix. You don't really hear it, where he says, and we are all mortal. And, you know, Ooh. given what's coming up five months down the line, you know, mm. you, you, it's... it's So there's bits and pieces. Like, and I do, I, I, just because I really love them, as I know you do as well, there are, along the way, we, we mentioned, you know, what's happening with the Beatles at any any given point in time, uh, here and there, and, you know, in particular dates, things are going on. So, um, and I, I just think it helps build that that atmosphere of, because it helps give a sense of where the world was and where the country was um, uh, at that time as well, that, that world into which Doctor Who was born. Absolutely. Oh, that that's fascinating. I have two questions to wrap up. They're, they're both cruel in different ways, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe the easier one first. Which of the two books was the hardest to write? Ooh, what a question. Um, hmm. I mean, I did enjoy doing both of them. I suppose 
I guess on one hand, you've got your your first outing writing a Doctor Who nonfiction book with the first one. That would have mm. been hard in itself. You've done it once now when you're writing the second one, but we've yeah. talked about some of I the difficulties yeah. with the second one. I suppose maybe I, I don't I didn't think about either of them as being hard but I suppose with the long game you know as I mentioned I was doing a lot more of my own interviewing and getting hold of a lot of people and persuading them to talk to me which wasn't hard in itself in in, in, in most cases but uh, it was it was certainly uh, you know an extra task that I didn't have mm. as much with pull to open there was only really you know Warris um, Carol and, um, and and Bernard who I spoke to knew for this book whereas uh, a lot of the obviously uh, material comes from researching various archives sort of newspaper archives online and of course I went back again to, to the BBC written archive centre at Caversham which is an absolutely wonderful place and, and 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 got a tremendous amount of help from them there with with making this happen so I'm, I'm very grateful to them so yeah I I, I didn't I, I don't I just enjoyed doing them both so much so I didn't think either of them was being hard but I but I suppose um, there were maybe more more tasks to do with the long game just because there was so much more of tracking people down and, and persuading them to, to speak to me and things like that in terms of the new interviews. All right. Well, based on that and now onto the cruelest question, yeah. I, I realise this is this is the new book and like a new car, it's got the new book smell. But which of the two books was your favourite? Oh, well, I mean... Again, it's tricky to say. I mean, but I, I enjoyed writing both of them. I really did. I suppose maybe this one, maybe pull to open purely because it is something that's fascinated me for so long. It, it, it is a story and uh, a subject by which I've been fascinated ever since I was a little child. Mm. Uh, that it was it was fun to be able to uh, to sit down and, and have my go at, at, at telling the tale, and uh, I just hope that uh, that other people enjoy reading it. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've you've tapped into a, a part of the timeline that might not be mined, and that fascinates me. That I really want to read it. As you know, I've got a pre-order in myself. I'm, yeah, it's very I'm kind keen. of you. Thank you. Yes. Oh, no problem at all. I'm I'm very keen to sort of think about this 1962 era myself. You know, because so many of the books just sort of start in '63. Like, yeah, things are green lit. They're making the show. It's. It's a period you're tapping into here that I think may be untapped. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, those two... I mean, the 1962 bit is obviously mainly the, the two science fiction reports that were done. And, and obviously, they mm-hmm. don't sort of directly lead into Doctor Who, but they were clearly an influence because they're the earliest things you find in the in the Doctor Who files at the Written Archive Centre. Is Those reports and, and the correspondence surrounding them, the two reports that were done by, by the script department... Um, and then two of the people who were involved in those reports, Alice Frick and, and John Braben, they're in that very first meeting in Donald Wilson's office on March the 26th, uh, 1963, a meeting that, of course, Sidney Newman wasn't even in. He tasked Donald Wilson with uh, with sort of setting this up and, and getting the ideas mm-hmm. for it. And uh, so, so, yeah, Frick and Braben are in that meeting, and they'd done the second report. Frick had worked on both of them. So it's getting to to write a bit more, and and as I say, providing more more context and background about about who these people were, and uh, things like I found actually Alice Frick is very interesting. She'd been, she'd had a long and successful career in Canadian radio drama. She'd uh, been a major figure in trying to push uh, women's rights at the CBC in Canada. For instance, when she was working there in the late forties, the CBC decided to um, fire all married women on the basis that uh, it wow. was it was quote unquote unfair. In a in a in a harsh job market, 
that that married women should be working for them when they could be supported by their husbands. Uh, so uh, wow. So uh, and she was one of the people who was instrumental in fighting back against that at the CBC. But also, there's a certain script that she uh, read in 1956 that she made a decision about that means we're all still here today doing this, talking about Doctor Who, which I don't think would be happening if she hadn't made this decision about this script in 1956. Interesting. I'm I'm intrigued, Paul. I'm intrigued. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Look, dear listener, Paul to open 1962-63, the inside story of how the BBC created and launched Doctor Who. It's out on July 24th from 10 Acre Films. It's a paperback. It's 424 pages. And it's been my pleasure to talk to its author here, Paul Hayes. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us on the Doctor Who show. Well, it's been a pleasure to be on the Doctor Who show, and thank you very much for having me. Thank you.